Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. 364 days ago, Senator Rubio was here giving a major speech on China and also addressing uh, Putin and his invasion. That speech had recommendations to face China, everything from domestic unity to empowering our allies, also strengthening our economy and countering CCP espionage. That uh, speech, in fact, has been echoing in our minds as we've been preparing this report. Senator Rubio is an inspirational leader, a policy expert, and a, more than one nonpartisan analysis has said he's the most effective Republican in the Senate. He's also among the most principled, earning a 98% score from our sister organization, Heritage Action for America, on their scorecard. And not only is he a policy leader, but he cares deeply for his constituents. In fact, uh, helping them to navigate the complex national government, he had his office helped nearly 20,000 Floridians in one year, to give you a, a sense of the scale of that wonderful state. Thankfully, for those of us who live outside of Florida, he also applies his principles and a considerable portion of his time helping us think through national challenges. He is vice chairman of the Intelligence Committee, and he also serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's a stalwart leader for human rights, He's a, uh, for a strong national defense, and for ensuring opportunity for everyone. So please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Senator Marco Rubio. I was here 364 days ago, so um, I'm back from my annual address to Heritage and um, on, the, on the issue of China. Thank you for having me. I think this is a really important time to have this conversation, or to continue to have it. A lot has changed in the last year in um, two ways. I think China's obviously gotten more aggressive, uh, more transparent about what they're trying to do in the world. And there's a growing bipartisan consensus that something needs to happen about it. But I still think this needs a lot more framework. And what I mean by that is that it's really easy to sort of stand in front of cameras and say, I'm going to be tough on China. But I think it has to tie into why. You know, why does it matter so that you can do it in a way that's smart and intelligent and actually serves the national interest? And I think the best way to do that is to just start talking about how we got to this point where we are now. You know, And, and I think that requires us to go back not just 20 years, 50 years, but really throughout the course of human history, at least parts of it that has been recorded. We were having this conversation a moment ago. If you think about the history of mankind on the Earth, with probably the exception of the 100 years or so of Greece, every society was basically a place that said there's no such thing as individual rights. It's a totally foreign concept. The notion of individual rights, the rights of an individual. Uh, people largely, their rights were whatever those who governed you said they were. There was, frankly, in most civilizations, even the greatest of empires of antiquity, there was very little reason to be optimistic or to be creative, for that matter, because creativity was not rewarded. What was rewarded was compliance. Um, and that really started changing about 200 years ago, in the West and particularly in America, that was founded this country on the belief that every human being had rights, that those rights were not the rights granted to you by the government, but they were the rights that were provided to you by your creator, and that the job of the government was to, was to protect them. And, uh, and that's how this nation was born, on the basis of those rights and on the basis of that belief. Really, truly ahistoric. There was no precedent for it. Um, in fact, while it borrowed from the Greeks, it wasn't entirely 
identical to it. It advanced from that point. So it was a nation born in a world of, full of empires who had the power to crush this infant republic in the crib. But it survived. And it didn't just survive, it continued to move forward and develop. And in each generation, it got closer to living and fulfilling the ideals of its founding. And that's why slavery in America could not coexist. Slavery has existed for thousands of years. Virtually every society in human history had elements of it. It ended in America, not because we were invaded by the French or the British and they imposed the end of slavery, but because Americans ended it. And they ended it because a country founded on the belief that every human being had God-given rights and slavery could not coexist. In addition, we continue to progress economically. We industrialized. We weren't just born with fertile farmland and natural resources and people from all over the world who came here, literally go-getters from all over the world who came here to start a better life because they, they believed they were created for a better purpose than what they were able to achieve in their native land. But we were also blessed with natural resources and we industrialized and helped build our economy. And it led us to two European wars, particularly the second one that America was very reluctant to get into. If Japan had not attacked us and Germany had not declared war, it's not clear how long it would have taken for America to get involved in that conflict. But the truth of the matter is America was reluctant. And there was a pretty substantial segment of our population uh, and of and prominent leaders that were traveling the country arguing against getting involved. But we did. And we helped save the world from Nazism and Imperial Japan, again, from a return to those dark ages. But from what emerged from that is two things. One, America, the preeminent power, the leading nation, uh, in a coalition of nations that believed we never wanted to have a war like that again. We never wanted to be threatened by totalitarianism. And we wanted a world that respected things like individual rights and the dignity of all people. But the other thing that emerged is an adversary in the Soviet Union that wanted to impose communism, which is, runs counter and contrary to everything that we talked about. And that Cold War existed. I was born into that era. Um, I lived and grew up in that era. And I remember um, my first year of college, the end of my high school first year of college, as the Cold War came to an end, it was really a stunning moment. Literally, all these assumptions, all the pillars upon which geopolitics have been built, all the things that I had known the world to look like and be, just collapsed overnight. Unprecedented, unpredictable, uh, something no one could have foreseen. And from that, people concluded that that was the end of history. That now every country in the world was going to be a liberal, free enterprise economy. Everyone was going to look like America. Communism was vanquished. Human nature had permanently been changed. And people would no longer ever again um, want uh, or try to impose their will on others through tyranny and so forth. The problem is human history, human nature doesn't change. And we, by the way, we made all kinds of assumptions on that basis, right? We, we decided that at this point, the existence of the nation state was not as big a deal. Our economy was no longer about the well-being of the nation state. It was about this global market. The notion was that if two countries had McDonald's, right, they'd never go to war. I sound stupid today, but I'm telling you, plenty of professors around the world would tell people, if two countries with McDonald's have never gone to war, that has obviously now changed. But the point being is that those are the kinds of thinking that were out there, that somehow economics and trade, by tying nations together through economics and trade, you could somehow fulfill what the League of Nations could never do, what the United Nations could never do. You could get countries to forget the existence of placehood. You could get countries to forget nation state. And you could cause them to instead view themselves as citizens of the world and consumers in this global economy in which everybody was a winner and no one was a loser. The second thing that happened is that we were an unrivaled power. Honestly, from the end of the Cold War, I would say up until about the early 2000s and 10, 12, 13 period, this was a unipolar world. Uh, America was the only global superpower, the only nation capable of projecting power geopolitically, militarily, and culturally around the world. 
And what happens to a nation that is a unipolar power? Where it reminds me a lot of virtually every NBA game, where it doesn't matter, right? I'm not saying it's fixed. I'm just saying this. It doesn't matter. You, you could be up like 30 points in the third quarter. Every NBA game seems, especially in the playoffs, like narrows down to two points at the end of the game, no matter how much somebody is up early on. And I don't know what the psychology is behind it. I'm not a psychologist, uh, although I guess um, when you serve in the Senate, you've got some pretty advanced studies in psychology. But um, I'm not a psychologist, but I can tell you that my sense of it is that complacency is part of a human tendency. And, and with it comes decadence. And with it comes the belief that everything's going to be fine. We don't need to do anything. Everything always works out for the best in the end automatically, because it always has, because that's all we have around. And that's basically what we have today. Today, we are a country where the majority of people in government, and certainly the majority of prominent people in society, have never lived in a world where America has a near-peer competitor, another country with similar power and with hostile intentions. We've never lived in a world like that. And much of our policies and our approach to the world to this day are built on a world that no longer exists. And, and, and that brings us to the point. And, and part of this, by the way, in this decadence is, you know, we convince people they're not citizens. You're not workers. You're not family. You're consumers. Life is about what can you afford to buy? Happiness is built on can you buy this? I mean, literally, we create holidays just to force people to buy things. I mean, we, we spend all this money on analytics and so forth, convincing people you really need this. You'll never be happy. And your wife or your husband will never be happy. And your children will not be happy. And your life will not be fulfilled if you don't own this car or you don't own this Peloton, or you don't own this, I don't mean to pick on any of these brands, I'm just telling you that that's sort of what's happened. At the same time, we sort of reached this era of decadence where we're like, we're, we, we've gotten so smart, we're now so advanced as a, as, a, as a species, that things like family and faith and community, and even the notion of country is no longer relevant. We don't need those things anymore. Family is not really that important. Family is whatever you want it to be. And so we, uh, same with community. The fact that we live in a society that increasingly forces us into isolation from one another, not to live alongside others. We've attacked all of the places that people that are very different come together. Same with faith. We've waged a war on faith like this. So, you know, again, I don't believe this country should ever have a, an official religion or a sectarian nation. But we've discouraged, we've discouraged teachings that basically encourage people to do things that are good for people and good for their neighbors. Things like care for the poor and the less fortunate. Things like put others ahead of yourself things like forgiveness, things like seeing the best in others, all these things that, frankly, have to come from somewhere. They're not natural to humanity. Faith created those guardrails and those, those guideposts. We've waged war on them. And so now we wake up, as you have, as I have, as others here have, and we realize that the history did not end. History was never going to end because human nature will never change. One of the reasons why biblical stories are so ap uncannily applicable, applicable today over and over and over again Okay, is because human nature is unchanged. People dress differently. They have different technology. We advance in all kinds of things, but no matter how many satellites we put in space, human nature remains unchanged. And there's a dark side to human nature. There are, we there are failings in, in us as creatures that, that we have constructed societies and faith constructs and moral constructs to help limit, particularly when it comes to harming one another. But human nature has not changed. And so we wake up, and, and human nature is, for example, that we may have pretended that the war history was over and that nation state no longer matter, but China never got that memo. China does care about the development of nation states. And they had fits and starts. They did the great, great leap forward, which didn't work. And you know, millions of people died in a the famine. Then they decided to wage a cultural revolution. But up around 25, to 2000, you know, 
2005, 2006 in particular, and, and heading into 07, 08, we had this economic meltdown, and Xi Jinping, who wants to go down as one of the great leaders in China's ancient history, um, decided this is the end for the West and for capitalism. Now's the time to move forward. And from that point, from 2007, 2008 to the present day, we've seen an acceleration in their role. What we've seen from this economic order we created, right, where no longer did it matter, economics was basically about what was good for the global commons, what was good for the global economy, and not necessarily what was good for the nation, is two groups really prospered. The first is multinational companies. Obviously, there, there's nothing illegal about being a multinational company, but there's a reason why the CEO of Apple is in Beijing yesterday, hailing what a great country and how much progress they've made. And that is because they build and make a lot of phones there. And it's worked out, they've invested a lot of money in that production capability, and they want to maintain it. They've done very well, and so have others. And the other is China. The fact of the matter is that China is going to be a rich and powerful country throughout history. They have always been a rich and powerful country, with the exception of the last 150 years or so. But by and large, throughout most of history, China has been a rich and powerful country. But they have gotten richer and faster at our expense. Not because of what they did, but because of what we did. Because of what we allowed to have happen, because of this viewpoint that we had. Um, the impact of it has been we decided, well, it doesn't matter, right? We'll get rid of these jobs. It's okay if all these jobs leave America. They'll be replaced by better jobs. These jobs will pay more. The infamous go learn how to write code. Well, it didn't work out that way. People didn't get up in their 40s and go learn how to write code. And if they did, maybe they're being laid off right now because all the tech companies are laying people off and collapsing their banks. But the fact of the matter is that people didn't do it. They didn't leave. But what it did collapse is their communities. It did wipe out good paying jobs. It also wiped out, by the way, all the other anchors that come with it. So when a community collapses because jobs disappear, don't, you don't just leave people behind untethered, like nothing to give the grounding to their everyday life, because they're not just consumers. You know, they're also, there's dignity attached to that work. But you also destroy the PTA and the Little League, and you destroy the churches, and you destroy all those things that make community community, and you leave people behind in despair. But it's also left us with a vulnerable economy. So if you look at our economy today and people brag about our GDP, but our economy, GDP, but our economy is basically built on two sectors, predominant, finance and services. And there's nothing wrong with finance and there's nothing wrong with services. The problem is that in a time of conflict, what matters more, the ability to fuel your economy or the ability to you know, find some app that will deliver food to your house? What matters more, the ability high-end services or the ability to grow your own food and produce the, uh, from an industrial capacity. We also have an economy that's dangerously consolidated, particularly in things like agriculture, but in other places as well, very consolidated industries in which power resides in the handful of a small number of, of companies. So we have an unbalanced economy. And then one of the things that COVID revealed but already existed is these very vulnerable long supply chains. And from a military concept, I'm not a military tactician, but I, I do like to read about history, and one of the failings of every campaign, one of the things Russia's finding now, is the longer your supply chain, your supply lines, the more vulnerable you are. Well, we've learned that our supply chains are about as long as they can be, literally from the other side of the world, and they're not just far away, they happen to disproportionately reside in the hands of our geopolitical adversary. Someone who, a nation that will have no problem in using that as leverage against us. And so the result is we confront twin challenges, both at the same time. The first is we have a near-peer competitor and a nation of leaders who have no memory of what it's like to have a near-peer competitor, a near-peer adversary. And at the same time, we seek to confront it at a time of societal and cultural rot. 
that's dividing our nation, that's weakening the national soul, that questions our identity. And at the end of the day, ask yourself, you know, when you ask people to take on a challenge like this, you have to convince them that what they're fighting for is worthy and special. We don't have schools that teach people that our nation is special, that there's anything unique about it, quite the contrary. Um, and all the other things that make a nation strong. We, we're wa a society that's waging war on truth, on basic truths, on basic truths. Things like gender doesn't exist anymore. Um, and, 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 and all of these sorts of things that, are, that, that we confront on a daily basis that are nonsensical, but it creates the societal rot and, and, and destruction from within that makes it hard for us to unite people, much less rally behind a great cause. So I, I uh, will confess, I did not read all 100 of the recommendations. I read the executive summary. I said to them, that's why God made it into executive summaries. But, but, um, but I do look forward to it. And I think some of it is really our challenge is to turn these ideas into something that's operational. But I think really the way forward begins with this, and that is events like today, organizations like Heritage, that help us to wake up and to realize that we are not just in a competition. We're in a conflict. And I say, people think conflict, they think war. I don't want there to be a war. A war, there's never been a conventional war between two nuclear powers. So no one can tell you where that goes over the long term, probably not to a very good place. I don't want there to be a war. But that doesn't mean we're not in a conflict. We are in a conflict, a geopolitical conflict, a diplomatic conflict, a societal conflict, a technological, a commercial, a trade, at every level. And, and frankly, uh, certainly a military competition when it comes to um, um, capabilities. So we are in a conflict, and we are in a conflict with a nation state that doesn't just seek to replace us, not doesn't just seek to be the most powerful nation in the world. They seek to reorient the world. If you look at Xi Jinping, and here's the one thing we've gotten really good at. For a long time, okay, these Chinese leaders would give speeches or put out these slogans, these eight character, whatever they call them, but then they would say something completely different in English. But now we've got enough people translating Mandarin so that we can see exactly what they mean. And they talk about, you know, crushing the heads of the capitalists and, uh, you know, spilling the blood and, uh, of, the, of those who dare to challenge China. The, the, please be under no illusion. China envisions a world in which they are the world's most powerful country, and they view America in general, in specific, and the, and the West writ large as decadent, hollow, and in rapid decline. What they see in these speeches that I give here today is the temper tantrums of the dying throes of a once great power. That's what they see. They think America's in rapid decline. They're just having a temper tantrum. All the great powers have temper tantrums as they go towards their death. And that's what's happening now. And they fully envision a world in which China is the most powerful country. Now, if China, its government resembled the government of Belgium or Luxembourg or the Netherlands, you know, maybe we wouldn't be having this speech today. We probably wouldn't be proud about it, but we would feel a lot like the Brits did when America supplanted them in the world order. But what we have here is something very different. What we have here is a tyranny and a regime that does not believe in individual rights, whose concepts of human rights is nothing like what you would define as human rights. To them, human rights is the right to do whatever your authorities tell you. There is the richest, ask Jack Ma what rights billionaires have in China. They have the right to shut up and move to Indonesia for a year, if you won't. That's the right they have. And they do that to their richest citizens. What would they do to the everyday people? I can tell you what they do. They put Uyghur Muslims in death camps. They wipe out Tibetan culture. They run over protesters and massacre them in Tiananmen Square. They have no regard for their own people. And so does it matter that a country like that would become the world's most powerful country? Absolutely. And this is the argument they're actually making. As China goes around the world and you read Xi's translation, what he's basically saying is this model of the West, of individual freedom, of, of, of human rights, of democracy, of all these sorts of freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of opinion, 
That model doesn't work. It's chaos. Just turn on the news. It's chaos. Look at Israel. Look at America. Look at France. It's chaos. You see any of that in China? You should follow our model. And frankly, it's appealing to some. Because in a world that's uncertain and unstable, security is attractive. And that's what authoritarians always promise, security at the expense of your freedom. Give, in, give up your freedom. Give up your individual rights, and I will make sure things are secure and things are safe. Some of them will say, I'll make sure things are safe, and, and once they are, I'll give you back your freedom. They never do. But that's the model they're sending around the world. So we're back to the historic norm of great power competition. And China wants to take us back to where mankind has generally lived for thousands of years, with the exception of the last 200. And that is a world where the notion that individuals have rights no longer exists. So I think there are, there are really three things that, that we have to focus on. Um, and I think probably all 100 of your ideas fit within one of these three categories. The first, frankly, is ourselves. We have to rebuild our society from the ground up by, rem by reminding ourselves of things that matter. Number one, America is something to be proud of. I won't go into the long litany of it here today, but this is not just wave the flag, apple pie stuff. I think America is really has an incredible story to tell. I think it's an unrivaled story. And it's one that we should not be shy about telling. And it's frankly something that we should not be funding schools that say the opposite. Do you have a right to criticize an American decision from time to time? Absolutely, because at the end of the day, no one's claimed that America's perfect. I don't claim our history's perfect. I claim it's better than anybody else's. That's what I claim. And I think we have history on our side to prove it. I think we need to reach a society where human life matters, where children are viewed as something that's not a burden, that a child is not something that could potentially destroy and ruin your life. Why, why are we shocked that a poll comes out that people no longer value having children when we have a society that basically says, if you have a child right now, your life will be destroyed. Your life will be ruined forever. Well, why would you value child rearing if that's the case? Community matters. And community is not about a, a bunch of weirdos on an app halfway around the world. Community is about the people you live next to, about people that you have different opinions with, about people who you don't share some views with, but you share things that are important. Your kids go to the same school. Your kids play on the same team. You attend the same church. You're part of the same organization. It's one of the reasons why I hate the politicization of sports. College sports in particular is one of the few places left in America where people that are very different from one another come together. When you inject politics into that, you're taking away one of the last places where people that are different actually have to interact with one another. And I'm telling you, I live in a study on what happens when you put 100 very different people together. And it reminds me, you know, for all the talk and the noise that you hear out there, like, you know, my colleagues don't go around spitting on each other in the hallways. And that's why you find that one minute Elizabeth Warren and Rand Paul are arguing about something, and the next minute they might be voting the same way on something. Because when you force human beings to work together from time to time, they will find common cause. And these are the things that bind together community, not to mention other things that are important for any society, like these groups that solve problems government never could. And then I think faith is something that should be encouraged, not dictated, not directed, not forced. You can't. But encouraged? Why would we discourage a moral code? Why would we discourage something, some basis upon which people can determine not what's legal or illegal, what's right and what's wrong? what's good and what's bad. Because we, on our own, some, it has to come from somewhere. And I assure you, it does not come from human instinct. Human instinct is about self-preservation. It's selfish. It's a desire to get ahead at someone else's expense. What regulates us is a moral code. And I think religion provides it. Multiple faith traditions provide it. So that's the first. The second is we have to reorient our economy. And I think that's where some of the things that you've talked about. I'm not talking about 
government owning factories and directing. But I do think this, yes, we, we should remain a market economy, absolutely, 100%. But I ask you, what do we do in those instances in which the most efficient outcome, the market outcome, happens to be really bad for America? So for example, the market says it's cheaper to make medicine in China. Let's make medicine in China. There's no doubt that from a market perspective, if I was an AI robot, I would say that is what we should do. But I'm not an AI robot. I'm a US senator from Florida and the United States of America. And I think it's a really bad idea to depend on China for our medicines, even though it's cheaper to do it there. And so there, when that happens, we have to decide what's, who, who, who serves what. Is the country the handmaid of the market? Or is the market there to serve the country? And so I think we have to get back to a point in which we view not just the market, but trade in general as something that we should value to the extent that it furthers the nation. And this is not some anti-Reagan view. On the contrary, Reagan, people forget, Reagan took on the Japanese. We had a trade war with Japan because they wanted to dominate the personal computing in that technology sector. And it's the reason why multiple countries in Asia today have electronics industries, because Reagan took it on. He understood the difference between fair trade and, he, and mercantilists. And he also understood that there were things that are important to America's future. There are things we have to be able to do. You can't be a great power if you're not an industrial power. It's just that simple. Look, both the Japanese and the Germans had superior technology and weaponry than the United States. You know what decided that war? That they had better planes, but we had more of them. Because for every one of their planes that got shot down and every one of ours that got shot down, there were five more on the line ready to be produced. And they couldn't match it, and neither could Nazi Germany. And that's what ultimately decided the war. The Second World War was won as much as anything else by industrial power. So you, industry looks different in the 21st century, but you can't be a great power without industrial power. And then I think we have to also wake up to the reality that we are in a geopolitical conflict between two very different models of human relations and the world. One model is the China-Russia model, which frankly offers the world what the world has had to live under for thousands of years. And the other is the values of freedom and liberty and the idea that individuals matter and have rights. And it's messy. There's no doubt about it. It's a huge advantage the authoritarians have. Their societies look more orderly because they will crack heads and they will jail people right up to the point of revolution. Here, we argue, we argue loudly, people take to the streets, it looks chaotic. But in the end, it's a better model to the extent, obviously, it's under the rule of law. And, and, and that's one of the arguments we're really having is a civilizational conflict more than anything else. All of this matters because it's not just, this is not just about, OK, who's going to be the most powerful country in the world? We are living in a hinge moment in history that will define the 21st century. When they write the book about the 21st century, it'll be about this. And it's hard to perceive it when you're living through it. If you, you know, go back to other hinge moments in history, the people living at that moment probably didn't realize it because you're busy with everyday life. Things are happening, things are going on. You don't live, you don't realize I'm living right in the middle of history, but we are. And every day we make decisions that are gonna determine what the future looks like. And I think that's an important choice that we're gonna make. It's one that we'll be judged on for a century or longer. It's so will determine not just the future course of the country, but I think the state of the world. And I think that the choice really comes down to, do we want to return to the dark ages in which the dominant powers on the earth were powers that did not believe that individual humans had rights granted to them by their creator? Or do we want to continue to live in a world where at least those nations who seek to live under the sunshine of liberty are able to do so? That is, at the end, at the core of the economics, of the industrial, of the technological, of the military, of the geopolitical, of this entire conflict that we now face. That's the conflict we face, freedom versus totalitarianism. 
and it will determine what the 21st century looks like and what life is like for those not yet born. So thank you for the chance to talk about this. What a tour de force and timeless. I mean that because you, you weaved in human nature throughout that those remarks and uh, just a, a brilliant exposition. Uh, I think we have time for one question. Unfortunately, I'm going to take it. Uh, <laughs> unfortunate for you. Uh, you spoke very, very well about the need to have a strong culture, a strong economy, uh, and realized that the, the battle that we're in. And I wonder, one, one thought that I, I had on this is uh, merit and opportunity. And there's no one that speaks uh, more eloquently about the need for everyone in America to have opportunity and to be able to rise based on merit. And if you look at uh, the Chinese Communist Party, in some ways they encourage merit. So the average Chinese family spends about a year's salary preparing their child for college entrance exams. And at the same exact time in the United States, we're talking about getting rid of entrance exams altogether. So I wonder if you could talk about the need to get back to opportunity and how that would make us stronger vis-a-vis -vis China. Well, a couple points. The, the, in totalitarian regimes, especially in Marxist ones, the yes, they, they value merit, but there's an entry fee, and the entry fee is compliance. Mm -hmm. It's the how do they control you? They control you because only members that are loyal to the party have a chance to go to school. And then the compliance is the first phase, and then and then ultimately, once you're in these organizations, they they value merit. Um, to a point, but then ultimately what gets you promoted, and it's the weakness of totalitarian and authoritarian regimes, their weak point is that what gets you promoted is not that you're good, it's that you tell them what they want to hear. Mm. And that's why I always tell people, if in fact that virus came out of a lab in Wuhan, the fact of the matter is that it's possible Xi didn't know about it. You know why? Because in totalitarian governments, you don't get rewarded for picking up the phone and saying, hey, we got a problem here. You get rewarded for pretending it didn't happen. You get rewarded for pretending for trying to cover it up because you know you don't get that so on on the issue of merit i would say this I, i'm sure there are some here that are fans of sports so let's just use an nfl franchise um but you can pick your favorite one or maybe it's another sport if i told you tomorrow our team imagine if tomorrow your favorite team whatever your favorite team is in whatever sport announced we are no longer going to fill our rosters with the best players we can find what we're going to do is make sure that our roster reflects our community and it looks like our community it's an, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attractive goal. It's certainly an altruistic one. Your team would suck, okay? <laughs> and everybody knows that. <laughs> and everybody knows that. And there isn't a single sports franchise in America that builds its roster that way. What they do is they say, I don't care what this dude's last name is. I don't care where he went to school. I, I need to find people that know how to play and can play and are good. Mm -hmm. That's what they all do. So if that's how we treat our sports franchises, why would we not treat our other institutions the same way and certainly our country? And when someone says to you, well, unless we do that, then certain people, because of their background, will not be able to succeed, well, now you're being discriminatory. Because mm. now what you're telling me is that there are people that are incapable of doing that because of where they come from or because of their race or ethnicity or gender. And so you have to somehow step in and provide them an opportunity. Now, that's different from a structural impediment. Okay. If there exists a structure, I'll give you a great example. I mean, one of the reasons, one of the things that I've done proactively, as we try to do, is we try to make sure that minority students are aware of the opportunity to have paid internships in Washington. Because I never had the chance to do that, and if I had done so, I probably wouldn't have run for the Senate. But I had, um, <laughs> but I, 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 that's an opportunity I didn't even know existed. Like, I had no idea that that even existed. 
and there's a, probably an impediment, whether because they can't afford it, because they don't go to a school that talks about this opportunity and, what's, and so forth. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, I want to expose people mm -hmm. to opportunities they're not otherwise knowing exist. But that's different from saying, we are going to hire people solely on the basis of filling out, you know, making sure that we're, because now what you've done is anti-American. You've now basically turned American into something it's never been. American's never been a race. It's never been an ethnicity. Anyone can be an American. Doesn't matter where your, what your background is or, or, or where your parents came from. And when you argue differently, you're basically arguing something that goes counter to our very identity as a nation, one of the things that makes us unique and special. So that's where I think opportunity really matters, having an economy that creates opportunities, removing artificial impediments, but not doing it in a way that somehow categorizes each of us, not as an individual, not as a person with a unique set of experiences and abilities, but as a race or an ethnicity or a gender. When you do that, when you start categorizing people as that's their number one attribute, that's un-American and it's destructive. Wow. Well, we do need to keep you on time. The Thank Senate you. is in session today. Uh, we're really grateful for your time and your leadership on battling the Chinese Communist Party. Thank, Thank you for you. being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And uh, how I know that was a great speech, one of the many reasons is I occasionally, sitting here, would have a glance over at Michael Pillsbury and see him nodding. So that's how I know a great speech. Uh, I'd like to invite Michael and uh, Jeff Smith to come to the stage. Um, Michael Pillsbury is our senior fellow for China Strategy, and Jeff Smith is our director of the Asian Studies Center. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this new paper that we have out that we heard a little bit about, and also talk about the issue. Yeah, please have a seat. So, wow, what a, what a tour de force. And, you know, you combine this speech and last year's speech, 364 days ago, you have a combination of a lot of good, solid recommendations and a really a big picture view of the civilizational conflict here. Uh, Michael, what do you make of his, the senator's emphasis on that civil, civilizational uh, competition? Well, it's a very controversial topic inside the field of China experts. Mm. A lot of China experts... So I talk louder? Until they fix the microphone, just yeah, speak a little louder. The word civilizational is a very important debate about China. You have China experts who say, no, it's a Marxist-Leninist state, and our battle is with Marxism-Leninism. Mm. It's not Chinese civilization. I don't belong to that school. Yeah, we'll take the handheld mic. I think his mic has gone bad. Probably was made in China. <laughs> <laughs> How's this, Derek? Ah, it's perfect. Okay. Made in America. So sure. this idea of a civilizational ch challenge from China is very important. Uh, Senator Rubio believes in it. I believe in it. It's not the majority view yet. Mm -hmm. The view tends to be it's Marxism-Leninism or somehow China is just trying to be more competitive. Who can care about that? Mm -hmm. uh, a very senior State Department official got fired for giving a public interview uh, with Anne-Marie Slaughter as the interviewer. Uh, I'm mindful of this. I may say something to you. It gets me fired. Uh, she said, she used the word civilization. Mm. She's talking about the Cold War. It's important for our own study here of how the Cold War might unfold with China. She said a very simple point, but it angered many people, including Secretary of State Pompeo. Mm. She said the Cold War with China will be very different and more challenging than with the Soviet Union 
because the Soviet Union is in the Western family. Mm. We shared linguistic roots. We shared concepts of uh, history. She didn't mean to demonize the Chinese, but she meant to warn everybody mm -hmm. that they may not think like we do mm. about the competition or other issues. A lot of China experts in America who teach Chinese literature, philosophy, uh, ancient history, they agree with that. Mm. Their stock in trade is teaching for a year or two hundreds of students why China is different mm. than Western civilization. She also, ha her name's Chiron Skinner, by the way. Uh, also, the Chinese themselves, in my next book, I have a lot of quotations in the last five years or so from Xi Jinping and his advisors saying China is an exceptional civilization, different from the West. Mm. So why fire somebody who's bringing mm. the news that the professors agree with, China agrees with? And I think the reason is it's much easier to mobilize support against a communist country by saying they're Marxist-Leninists. Mm. It's just like the Soviet Union. It'll be, you know, all we have to do is stand up and talk and they'll collapse. I don't think that's correct. I don't think China's going to collapse. And I think our own structure in dealing with China so far, we don't have a new structure. In 1947, when the real Cold War began, mm -hmm. we created in one year, Congress and the president created the Air Force, the National Security Council. There was no National Security Council. Mm -hmm. The Central Intelligence Agency didn't exist whole series of things because at that point in 1947, enough had happened that people were really quite scared mm. what could happen next. I don't think we've reached that point yet with China. To me, Senator Rubio's most important point wasn't just civilizational challenge, it was the word operational. He said he hasn't read all 100 recommendations yet, but he hopes there'll be operational things in there. Mm. And Jeff and I have good news for him. There are a hundred operational recommendations in here mm. that we will all know within a year or two, has the Congress done these things or not? It's mainly congressional. Has the White House done these things or not? We'll get some better idea of where we are in the competition. Right now, I'm not sure we even know where we are. Mm. Well said. So Jeff, a lot of organizations around town have put out some kind of a plan uh, to counter China. Uh, what makes the heritage plan that's kind of action oriented, what makes it unique? Mm. And how many recommendations, um, how would you categorize the recommendations? Like it's hard to go through all 100. Yeah, I don't think we have enough time for that. Is my mic working all right? Sounds like it is. Great. Uh, I, th I think this I lapel mic's covered. working. I also actually first want to give Senator Rubio a quick shout out. Yeah. Uh, China has become a, uh, a popular topic now on Capitol Hill, but Senator Rubio was, was talking about this before the cool kids. Senator mm. Rubio, you can go back 10 years was laser focused on the China threat uh, before it sort of, uh, you know, took over the rest of Washington. Mm -hmm. So credit to him and credit to the speech he gave today. Um, this paper does a few important things. One, I think, is that it makes the hard calls mm -hmm. at both a macro level and at a tactical level. And so the first part of this paper uh, deals with the state of the China-U.S. relationship and what we call a new Cold War. And so the paper is not afraid both to call China an adversary and to identify that we're in a new Cold War. And we explain why in both cases. Why do we see China as an adversary? This is the series of actions that it is doing to undermine the United States. Um, we explain in great detail why we see China as an adversary. 
why the relationship has grown to such a contentious level, why it in some ways is a more potent adversary than the USSR was, why we explore why the engagement policy that we pursued for decades failed and how do we get to the stage that we're at today. We look at what are China's current strengths and weaknesses and how might those weaknesses be exploited and where do we have to shore up our own weaknesses in order to be effective in the future. So if part one looks at, at the big picture, 30,000 foot level, part two, which is really what we call the heart of the plan, drills down specifically into 48 separate issues or fault lines in China-US relations. And they're broken up into five broad categories. What do we need to do to protect the homeland, to secure US prosperity, to properly reorient our defense posture, to hold China accountable and diminish the CCP's influence, and what do we need to do to exercise global leadership. And these 48 separate issue briefs contain over 100 policy recommendations, specific policy recommendations, covering the whole gamut of issues that you could imagine in, in China-US relations, export controls, Chinese lobbying, fentanyl, CCP espionage and IP theft efforts, critical minerals, supply chains, Taiwan, restoring conventional deterrence. It is a grand survey of, of the new Cold War. And each section uh, does five specific things. Identify the problem, articulate the policy solution, look at how that policy solution has to be operationalized, examine the impact of that policy measure that we're suggesting, and then look at what do we need to do with allies and partners. Mm -hmm. We do think this is very much uh, a challenge that requires burden sharing and leaning on our, our treaty allies and strategic partners around the world. The last thing I'll say uh, that it underscored for me in particular is how much this is a whole of society effort. Mm -hmm. How much of our problems with China, the threats that China poses, are being grappled with at a, at a state and local governance level. And in some ways, that's a vulnerability of ours, that we're doing some things better at the federal level, but it's the subnational level where China is operating, where we have some of the greatest vulnerabilities. And so this, you hear the phrase, it's probably overused, but from Main Street to Wall Street, this is going to have to be a whole of society effort. Mm. Wow. And I want to pick up on something Jeff said, uh, Michael, and ask you about it. And actually, the senator did as well. They talked about engagement or this idea you know, if you open up a McDonald's, you democratize, and no two countries with McDonald's have gone to war and so forth. Uh, you've served uh, pretty much every president since Reagan uh, and before. Uh, you've seen China relations develop over the decades. What do you think, what were a couple of the turning points where at least people are now starting to wake up, I, I feel like? It's not complete wake up yet, and there's still a lot of people that are in denial, but uh, tell us what you've seen over the last few decades and how that issue has developed and where we are today. Well, going back to um, President Nixon's visit in February 1972, there was already somebody who woke up. His name is Bill Buckley. Mm. He's been here. He's a very famous, mm -hmm. maybe the most famous conservative of the of the time. There's a tape recording of Nixon and Kissinger talking to each other, which I've listened to out at the Nixon Library. Should we invite Bill Buckley to come with us on this trip to China or not? And Kissinger said no. He'll just create a lot of trouble 
and he could even undo the whole image we're trying to create as China as our new partner. Nixon said, no, it's better to have him inside than outside. So Buckley filed a number of reports all put together in a book saying that China was like Nazi Germany. Nixon and Kissinger were making a terrible error to make friends with Nazis. And he spelled out specific Nazi names in his columns. He said, this is all a hoax. What we're seeing is not true. And there were another 200 reporters on the trip, including very famous TV hosts. They broadcast the opposite. This is a new land. Uh, they've overcome poverty. They don't quarrel with each other. These blue suits they're all wearing are kind of attractive. <laughs> so who was right and who was wrong that early? Really only one person. But if you reread his reporting from 1972, you realize in a way that Kissinger was right. They should not have brought him along on the trip. <laughs> and then slowly, every few years, in the 50 years since then, Every few years, something happens that's bad in U.S.-China relations. It never changes. Policy is not changed. It's explained away each time. Mm. A growing group of Bill Buckley's is a historical phenomenon. It does happen. But they only talk. They give speeches. Mm. They say it's a terrible thing that a 1,000 students were killed in Tiananmen Square. Mm. Let's have sanctions, which were put on China. Two years later, they're taken off. Uh, when I was working for President Reagan, during the campaign, I was a campaign advisor, I was a transition team person, then he gave me a job at the Pentagon, charge of policy planning. President Reagan personally got interested in selling weapons to China. Mm. He sent John Lehman, his conservative, well-respected Secretary of the Navy, to China to provide Mark 46 torpedoes, our best torpedoes of the time. Mm. The thinking was, well, in Chinese submarines, these torpedoes will be able to sink uh, the Soviet fleet. Mm. Didn't work. So when you, what I tried to do in 100-year marathon mm -hmm. with declassified records is show just how close we have been to the Chinese Communist Party mm. from the beginning from 1943, 1944 on. With few exceptions, they were seen as our allies. Here at the Heritage Foundation, Heritage, as you know from Ed Fulner's talks, uh, Heritage was very pro-China, mm -hmm. explicitly pro-China. When my book came out in 2015, I asked, can I come over? I've been a friend of Heritage you know, for 30 years. Can I have a book talk? I was told no by one of your predecessors you cannot discuss your book at Heritage. Mm. It's too tough on China. Mm. Now, at that point, it was the number one book on China in America. Mm. And outsold all other books on China. 300 appearances on Fox News. Mm. Why would Heritage do that? Because they believe deeply in the very things that Nixon and Kissinger are trying to do. China is our partner for the long term. Now, how to undo this thinking I think what Jeff and I in this report are trying to do, we're trying to say, if you do these hundred things, we can remain the number one power in the world. And many of the hundred things involve the Chinese Communist Party being blocked in things it wants to do. Some involve our own side. Our Treasury Department, just to pick one of the hundred, one of my favorites actually, the Treasury Department of the United States does not monitor in any way 
outgoing American investment to China. There's no records. There's no obligation to report. It can be in the most sensitive high-tech area, a fund like Sequoia, which the Wall Street Journal has been reporting about. Sequoia can organize technology, money by the billions, pick a sector in China where China wants to get ahead of us and then make it all happen. There's no need to report that to Washington, D.C. So you see the problem we face? We were too close by far to the Chinese communists from the beginning for all kinds of reasons that my book goes into. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then we can't get out of it. Mm. So I'm sorry to sound so pessimistic, but I think putting the 100 recommendations together that, as Jeff says, are very operational, they're very specific, mm -hmm. past legislation that says this, mm -hmm. and the text is really there. Mm. This is not just a China is bad kind of report. Other think tanks do that. This is the first time a think tank has operationally laid out, this is what we're going to have to do. Now, if we come back here, Jeff, in two years, we'll be able to have a scorecard and see how many of the hundred have actually been implemented. That, to me, is very exciting. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. We have time for some audience questions, so uh, please, uh, if you would, raise your hand. A microphone will come to you. You can just state your name and affiliation and uh, do be in the, in the form of a question. We have someone here on the front row. We can grab a mic there. Thank you very much for the presentation. Uh, great speech by Senator Rubio. My name is Alfonso Quinones. I'm the ambassador of Guatemala to the United States. Um, I, I would love to <laughs> read the report. As, as you know, uh, Guatemala is one of the few countries that still <laughs> has diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Mm -hmm. We are proud of it. Uh, we do not think that uh, relations should be transactional, but based on values and principles. Mm -hmm. Having said that, uh, the United States is losing ground because China is gaining. Um, mm -hmm. In Latin America, in South America, China is the largest trading partner, is mm -hmm. the largest foreign direct investor, mm -hmm. uh, and that has made that those countries get closer to the mm -hmm. uh, uh, to China. So I wonder if in the report you address this 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 kind of issues on on how to mm -hmm. uh, 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 try to keep the 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 U.S. as the as the forefront and, and not uh, then relinquish to to China as it seems that it's happening. Yeah. Uh, I'm more familiar to 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 Latin America, but uh, mm -hmm. look at Africa as we were uh, having a conversation before, and it's it's the same or perhaps worse. Yeah. So I don't know if this is uh, brought up in the report. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Who would like to to start on that one? Both of us, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I, Mr. Ambassador, I would say that the reason Guatemala, and I think it's 12 other countries, including the Vatican, recognize Taiwan, is you're accepting the notion that Taiwan is a government. It's a country. Therefore, you can have diplomatic relations with it. The United States took the lead in opposing that. It's part of the Kissinger-Nixon framework, expanded by Jimmy Carter, that Taiwan is not a country. We have no diplomatic relations with it. The executive branch will never permit Taiwan's leaders to come to Washington, D.C. That would imply that they're, they can go to California and meet Kevin McCarthy. But President Tsai is not going to be treat, treated as a president. And we do discuss it in the section on Taiwan.
This really undercuts deterrence for Taiwan, because how can you deter an attack on Taiwan if Taiwan belongs to China? Your government is saying no. Our government is, had made secret promises to the Chinese. I think some one reason 100-year marathon sold so well, there were so many declassified things people had never heard of. They never heard of the secret promise to the Chinese. We Americans know, we know from our lawyers, Taiwan does not belong to China. It never did. It was occupied by America, 1945. Then in the peace treaty in San Francisco, Japan gave it away, but they didn't give Taiwan to anybody. So it just sits there. But we believe, this was said to the Chinese leaders, we believe Taiwan is not part of China, but we'll make you a deal. Your government's not party to this. We will never raise the issue of who Taiwan belongs to. We will acknowledge your claim that you own, you Chinese communists own Taiwan, and we just won't challenge it. Now, fast forward to today, can we store munitions on Taiwan for deterrence? Can we have military exercises with Taiwan's military? No. Can we have communications with Taiwan's military? No. Did we close our command center on Taiwan to defend it back in 1978? Yes, we did. We closed it. Did we take out our nuclear weapons from Taiwan? That publicly nobody knew we had nuclear weapons in Taiwan, but the Chinese knew. They made it part of the deal. You want to recognize China, do business with us, take the nuclear weapons out of Taiwan and all the other U.S. military forces that are there. You would think Nixon and Kissinger would say, hell no, we can't do that. No, they took them all out. So you see the problem with Guatemala? You're in the probably morally correct position, <laughs> but you only have 12 other countries with you and there's 193 countries in the UN, please stick with Taiwan, but our own government does not. And we discussed the strategic ambiguity of that. That's one of the recommendations we have in the paper. Excellent. Anything you want to add, Jeff? Sure. Yeah, I think Mike did a very good job touching on the, um, the Taiwan angle of your question. There's a second component to that, which is the economic muscle that China is tossing around the world. And this is one of the key points, I think, in our analysis. Um, if this is a new Cold War, uh, China is a very different adversary than the Soviet Union was. One of the things that makes it much more capable and dangerous is that it is an economic peer of the United States in a way that the Soviet Union wasn't. Um, so we are not only grappling with a country that has substantial economic foundations, but that is intertwined with us and our partners and allies economically in ways that the Soviet Union was not. And that creates vulnerabilities for the United States and our partners and allies, and it creates challenges. Um, you know, despite the, 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 the trade war and the, and the Trump tariffs and COVID-19 pandemic and the decoupling efforts and all the tensions we have in the relationship now, China-US trade is still growing and breaking new records. Yeah. And this is, this is a, 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 a fundamental dynamic that we're not accustomed to. And how do we protect ourselves from an adversary who has social media spying apps on the phones of 100 million Americans?
Mm. Um, how do we contend with an adversary that's able to throw money around um, to coerce other nations to do things like sw switch recognition or punish nations for hosting a U.S. missile defense system or punish nations for evicting Huawei from their 5G networks? Uh, this is a significant challenge that we have to grapple with. One thing we need to do is, is not hamstring our own economy. We need to unshackle economic growth, the economic miracle in the United States, and continue to be a leader of the free world with our own sort of robust economic programs at home and abroad. But it definitely creates a new set of vexing challenges that we have to grapple with. And, and that's one of the new components of this new Cold War that we address in a paper. All right, uh, I see we have a lot of questions. We're very short on time, so we'll do rapid fire questions. We'll try to take two. Let's, uh, let's try right here first. I saw his hand first. We'll try to be very, very quick and brief. Sure. Uh, Marty Danifelso, Center for Urban Renewal and Education. Could you explain the geopolitical consequences to the United States and our allies if China takes Taiwan? Hmm. You want to take some other questions? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, why don't we do that? We'll do real qu uh, quick, uh, let's do the two hands there, and then, and then we'll... How are you? I'm Christopher Carter from Real America's Voice. We talk to a lot of people about these experts from China, but I don't want to talk about economics right now. What do we know about the organ harvesting in China? Mm. What we hear is a brutality that is unmatched since the Aztecs. At NIH, you have four years. That's if you're a somebody, a celebrity, a politician, somebody with money. In China, you have four weeks perfect match, a liver, lungs, whatever. How is our government letting them get away with this? Why don't they declassify the information and show them the camps where people are being imprisoned? Change the global opinion. This is almost the equivalent of when the United States had to go in with the Nazis and say, these camps exist. Yeah. These people are here. It's unequivocal. Why don't our government just do that and change global opinion? Thanks forget for economics. Thank Brutality is what yeah. we're talking about. Thank you for the question. Uh, we'll do one last one, then we're going to try to answer in rapid fire. Uh, Prashant Jha from the Hindustan Times. Two quick questions. One, the role of Europe. Europe still doesn't seem to have woken up to the Chinese threat. You think the invasion over the past year has changed that? Second, the role of Quad. And I know, Jeff, you follow this. Yep. How critical is Quad in countering China and the Indo-Pacific? All right, rapid fire answers. We've got Taiwan, human rights, particularly organ harvesting, and then Europe and the Quad. Let Mike take the first two and I can take the Quad. Sounds good. Okay. Um, what this report does Need a microphone. is what yeah. this report does is be constructive about specific things, policies that can be changed. I consider it a mistake anytime we see a senator, congressman, think tank person talking about the China threat with no action plan. So when you raise the issue of geopolitical consequences of a war with Taiwan, it's, it doesn't matter. It's just talk. It's a waste of time. Most of our House and Senate now, when they speak about China, they just talk. They don't say, therefore, I'm in favor of SRES 24, and I have 50 co-sponsors. I move the, the question. Same thing with brutality and organs. It's a terrible thing. It's a very favorite talking point for almost 15 years now. How brutal are the Chinese? You know, you can get a liver pulled out in 30 days, and therefore I have what? A House Res 624 
that places chemical places criminal penalties on something it's there's never any action so not to pick on the two of you but i want to anyway to talk without an action component is what this report is trying to get us past it's too late to just talk about how bad communist china is it's way too late and they don't care senator rubio made very clear the chinese reaction to all this it's the moaning and whining of a declining superpower, nothing more. We've got to have legislation and things that really happen in the real world, or we're going to lose and be very sorry about it. Mm, well said. Very Jeff, well you said. Yeah. cover Europe and Quad? Yeah, I, I don't know that we have enough time to cover both, uh, so I'll focus more on the Quad, but I think that's relevant because the Quad is more proximate to the China challenge and more important. I do think Europe has a role to play uh, in, in economics, in sanctions, in export controls, in denying China certain technology. But I think the Quad is, is, is a grouping for those in the audience who don't know. It's Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. Uh, grouping that uh, first formed in 2007. It was a very short-lived grouping. It fell apart about a year later somewhat due to pressure from China. Um, the Trump administration helped revive this grouping in 2017 uh, in a, at a period where all four of these countries had rising concerns about Chinese aggression abroad. And it's really thrived since then. And I think several things make the Quad special and unique, certainly in the context of the China challenge. Um, one is the sheer size and power of the grouping. We're talking about half of the population of the Indo-Pacific, half of the GDP of the Indo-Pacific, and over half of the military spending of the Indo-Pacific. A big reason for that is because this group includes India, which is the other titan of the region, which is now probably the most populous country in the world, and will soon be the third largest defense spender and third largest economy in the world. Now, India has been dealing with its own problems with the Chinese along their disputed border, which turned hostile in 2020. We saw the first casualties from a flare-up at the border. When I talk to my Indian friends, they think it is extremely humorous that we're having this debate about banning TikTok, because they had the same debate two years ago, and they banned it right away, snapped the finger. And the Chinese came to them and said, there will be terrible consequences if you ban this. And they said, that's OK, go ahead. Do your worst. Uh, our sovereignty, our national security, the security of our people is more important mm -hmm. than any consequences you're going to threaten us with. That identity, I think, is what's at the core of the Quad. Japan, Australia, the United States, uh, and India have the will and the capability to say no, to resist coercion, to accept the costs and push back. And I think um, as we move ahead, the more that we feel threatened by the Chinese, the more the Quad will be doing together. And this is going to be a central group for the 21st century. Very well. Well, we have run out of time. We're definitely going to be talking about this issue repeatedly. It is the number one national challenge for us as Americans. Uh, so please do keep an eye on your email and come back to Heritage for our next event. And I know that, uh, Dr. Pillsbury, you are looking at a strategic, uh, an index of strategic competition uh, yes. That's right. That's right. Which will go over strengths and weaknesses of both sides and where we are in that marathon uh, that you wrote about in the 100-year marathon. So uh, also one note uh, for members of the press, um, we will be having uh, an additional question and answer session in the Zimdahl room. You can just find me and I'll direct you. 
And uh, we should also thank our panelists and thank you for coming.